Amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. And here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so I'm so glad that you guys have joined us here this morning in person or online. We're just glad that we could gather. And as we gather together, we are going to continue uh, a series that we began this fall um, called Vapor. Finding Meaning Under the Sun. And what we're doing is walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, which is, we believe, written by Solomon, uh, who was this wise king, prosperous, had done all these amazing things, had actually been gifted by God with, with kind of otherworldly wisdom for, for leadership, for flourishing, and all these different things. And, and as his life begins to kind of come to that sunset stage, he wants to pass that wisdom on on to the next generation. And really, here we are a few thousand years later to generations uh, down, millennia down uh, through history, for us to be able to understand and hopefully maybe even navigate how can we have and find meaning and purpose in a world that's broken, in a life that's short, uh, in times of injustice, in times of great flourishing and joy. Uh, and he has this kind of thesis throughout the book that, that life apart from God, that is, that's when he says under the sun, that's shorthand for life that's apart from God, or life under heaven, right? Not where he's saying God dwells. That, that really all of it, he says, is vanity. All of it, he says, is this striving after the wind. All of it is the word vanity actually does mean vapor, that it's, it's something you can see, you know it's there, but you can't hold on to it in a real tangible way. And so as you try to grasp big concepts or, or wrestle with big and real questions, you just, you kind of get to this place of frustration. And so um, where we're at now, and, and hopefully you've, you've gotten one of our discipleship guides we have out there, we're going to be in week four um, of uh, our study here, uh, and we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. That's where we're going to be in uh, the Bible today. And so you can, you can turn there. And as you turn there, just by way of recap, if you're kind of coming in, um, you know, kind of in the middle of this, right? You know, you, you start watching a show on Netflix and maybe your spouse started it and they're four episodes in and they have to kind of explain things. I'll, I'll do that for just a brief minute for you. It is in the first chapter, he says, hey, what's the point of life if there's just these unending cycles that don't seem to produce anything? What's the point of life if ultimately we're not going to be remembered? What's the point of life if um, all of our pursuits, everything we try to accomplish uh, is ultimately going to fade away and, and we're going to end up, end up dying? And so in chapter two, he's like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, I've pursued wisdom. I, I want to know how to live a good life. In chapter two, he says, I want to get out of the library. I want to go into the laboratory. And he goes on this crazy experiment of pleasure, achievement, consumption. And that's the beginning of chapter two. And, and most of us in our lives have experienced or experimented with those things. And yeah, there's, Parties are fun, right? Good meals, great. Accomplishing something at work is awesome. Like enjoying relationships, enjoying time with people. Like those are, those are good things. But 
ultimately, again, apart from the God who made us and who made us for joy and made us to experience things, they find themselves empty, vain. And so where um, early on in chapter one, or rather it's the end of chapter one, he says, hey, knowing everything, having a bunch of knowledge, like that just kind of leads to frustration because you're like, I'd rather just have some ignorant bliss. He comes to the conclusion that just enjoying everything has its limits as well. And that leads us here to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and where, where we're going to kind of wrestle with two key facts for all of us. Maybe you've heard it said that there's, you know, two things are constant for all men and women, death and taxes. Well, for Solomon, as we look at chapter 2, we're going to see that there's two things that we're all going to deal with. Two things that are coming for us all. Death and Monday. Monday's coming, guys. I know it's Sunday, like I don't want to ruin your whole weekend here, but you know, if you're trying to disengage from school and work and all that stuff, we're actually going to see where we can find meaning and purpose in that so that maybe if I ruin your Sunday morning, it might actually lead to purpose and joy throughout your week. So here we are, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verses 12 through 17. It says this, this is Solomon, this preacher, preaching uh, a sermon in this book, and he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There is more uh, gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity or vapor or folly. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because of what is done under the sun, was grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after the wind. Okay, we're going to get to good news here, guys, but we're going to walk through maybe the valley of the shadow of death here for a moment. And so, as we said yesterday, or rather last week, that Solomon got out of the library, he went out into the lab through the the biggest frat party imaginable, right? He's living life, he's doing all these things, right? It's Saturday night was awesome, he was up late, everybody had a great time, good food, good drink, good celebration. When you get to this place in chapter 2, he woke up on Sunday morning, maybe a little hungover, right? He's like, okay, I did the party I'm just, I'm not feeling like that was ultimately satisfying. And, and, and as, his, as his head begins to clear, right, he's having that first cup of coffee. He's looking around. He's saying, maybe I'm going to go get some eggs Benedict, get some brunch, right? Just kind of ease in. His mind is no longer looking to Friday and Saturday night, but there's this realization that Monday's coming, right? He's going to have to go back to work. He's going to have to go back to school, right? And so he's, he's like, you know, I, I think I need to give wisdom another look. So if, if you don't know, you came in late. We, we, we looked at wisdom a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter one. And so here he is in chapter two. Again, he's like, I'm going to go ahead and give wisdom another look. Because, like I said, the, the hangover today di- didn't work out the way 
I thought it was going to. All the accomplishments I did didn't satisfy, so I want to give wisdom another look. So it's Sunday morning, reflecting, recharging, redirecting, because Monday is coming, because all of his experiments of the weekend came up empty. He's got clear eyes now. He's starting to sober up and kind of see that, okay, maybe there's something to wisdom. Maybe I undersold wisdom a little bit. And so um, while all of the experiments for pleasure came up empty under the sun, apart from God, ch- you know, chasing after the wind, before he goes to it, it, it dive into any other experiment, it's like, I, I think I need to go back and study again. So he looks at wisdom, he looks at, um, at, at knowledge, and he's like, maybe, maybe it's kind of like when we're in bed, right? We're like, Maybe, I, I know I, I'm not restful, I know I'm not settled, so maybe I'll just do what? Flip the pillow over, right? Maybe then it'll be cool and I'll, I'll finally get some rest. So he's going to flip the pillow of wisdom, if you will, give that another chance, see if it actually satisfies his soul. And, and, and what happens is he wants to make sure that he's engaged in wisdom enough, that he's engaged in wisdom enough that, that later generations don't go back and look at him and say, well, bro, I, I feel like you just didn't try hard enough on, uh, on work. You didn't try hard enough on um, enjoyment. You didn't try hard enough on engagement. You didn't try hard enough on wisdom. So he's like, no, no, Who, who's going to come after me? He's like, I'm the king. I've got more money, more power, more influence. I get to do these experiments in ways that none of us peons are ever going to get to do. So he wants to make sure it's exhaustive. And when he goes back and looks at wisdom and knowledge, what he finds is is, is this tension. It's equal parts encouraging and discouraging at the same time. So yes, there's some gain, he says, to, to wisdom when you compare it to madness or another translation is immorality folly, foolishness, like, like wisdom received and applied does have a, a benefit to life. And so, like, I think we can all wrap our heads around the idea that in general, it's better to live wisely than it is to live foolishly, right? Can we get some, some buy-in on that? Like, anybody who's like, no, I, I did foolish. It went really, really well, okay, right? No, like, we, we, we know that it's better to live wisely than just immorally and, and foolish. And, and really, one of the translations could even be like, like as an idiot. Like, man, you know, <laughs> some people just kind of keep stumbling forward, you know, and, and, and uh, they're just making their way. But like in general, in general, wisdom goes well. He says it this way, that, that the one with, with wisdom has like a light to navigate the world around them to walk down a path either in darkness or in light. So I was talking to some of you guys that, that hiked up to Pilchuck um, uh, yesterday morning, right? You did the sunrise hike and you're on the trail. And like, if you've ever walked on a trail with no light at all, oh, you can make your way, but you're gonna trip, right? You're gonna get hit in the head by a branch. You're gonna stumble. And, and, and man, if you're too foolish or whatever, like, you know, you're, depending on the path, right, you can fall right down the cliff. So in general, he says, it's better to have a light on the path, to, to know where you're going, that, that, that uh, otherwise, like you can still make your way with foolishness, but with no wisdom, you're just, you're just like a blind man, it says, stumbling around the dark. So even with that, I, I opened my eyes right away because I could feel I was getting close to the stairs. Didn't feel like doing an illustration of stumbling down the stairs for you guys this morning. So with wisdom, 
you can avoid a lot of pain. I mean, that's, that's like a benefit, right? Like, okay, I'm going to live wisely, and I'm going to hope that in doing that, I'm going to avoid some pain. And so he says, okay, good. Wisdom's great. And maybe you're like, okay, cool. Good sermon. We're going to go out about our days and just try to live more wisely. And there's people that, that try to do that, but, but ultimately, again, he gets back to like why it's folly or maybe the, the bad news, if you will, the, the tension of wisdom is he said, okay, yeah, I have more light on the trail if I have wisdom. I have a greater likelihood of walking down this path with maybe less injury, maybe less difficulty. And then he comes to this conclusion of hold the phone. I don't know if I know where this path goes. Like the trail doesn't go to the top of Pilchuck, you know, looking out at Snohomish County and all of its glory, right, with a sunrise. He's like, wait, I'm on this trail. I can see great. I'm not tripping. I'm doing fine. The fool's over there, blind, groping around, trying to make his way. He's getting beat up and bruised up all the way. And I'm like, that guy's an idiot. And then we keep walking and walking and walking. And all of a sudden the trail ends. And at the end of the trail isn't the lookout. It's the pit. He says, where the wise go and the fool goes is the same destination. And that's where we get to that shadow of death comes for us all. And so he says, well, wisdom is helpful, but wisdom on its own, while helping us navigate this life, isn't ultimately, on its own, apart from God, able to keep us from that destination that the fool goes as well. And so it it leads him to this place of frustration because he's like, why do I, why do I even try to live wisely if I'm just going to go to the same place the fool is? Right? And, and, and again, we don't want to undersell wisdom. Throughout Ecclesiastes, um, we'll, we'll see that wisdom leads to joy, to preservation, to strength, but it just has its limits and that um, it doesn't ultimately save you. And so it gets back to what's the point? Why would I do, why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Why, why, why build and cultivate and invest? And, and, and live a life that includes self-denial and discipline if it just spirals down to the same place. And so he wrestles with this because he's like, well, maybe I'll just use wisdom applied, which is great, have a positive impact on humanity. Right? You're going to be a great humanitarian. You're going to be a, a leader in the community. You're going to build a business. You're going to be involved in government. You're going to serve in a church. You're going to you know, work in a school. You're going to raise kids. Like, 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 okay, great. Like, have an impact. But, but, and, and, and you're thinking to yourself, if I do that, maybe I'm going to have a, a positive legacy. The greater work I put in, right? I need some reason to wake up on Monday morning. Maybe it's going to be legacy. It's going to be lasting legacy. But then Solomon kind of rips that up too because he says the wise and the fool have no, quote, enduring remembrance. Another way of saying that is like, your legacy is not eternal. And, and like, we, we know this, right? We, we know at a certain point that no matter how much impact you have in the world right now, no matter how big you are in this community or this culture, like, you're going to be forgotten. And maybe you're like, no, no, I'm going to do some amazing things. Like, they're going to put my name on buildings. They're going to they're put my name on a street. Maybe they're going to name a town after me. 
Anybody know who Mary is? From Marysville? You guys, y'all forget where we were? Anybody know the story? I mean, if you do, please, like, we can talk later. I'll find about it. But, like, I don't know. So cool, you got your name on it. But, like, collectively, as a culture, we have, like, zero memory. Right? Most of us, especially the last, like, two years, 18 months, I don't know, two weeks, whatever it has been, right? It says we don't really remember. So it leads to this discouraging place. So for Solomon, he says, I live selflessly, but I'm going to suffer the same fate as the person who's selfish. And this frustration and this tension, it says, leads him to a hatred of life. And, and that's, that's tough, right? Because on the one hand, you get to this angsty place. Uh, what, what, what is it all for? It's all meaningless. You know, why even have life? But here at the same time, you're like, but it's kind of precious. And I'm really not interested in, like, losing it. Right? The, the, the great cultural force, um, Woody Allen, is, he's a film producer. He's famous for, for saying this, that I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. He said, I want to achieve it by not dying. Right? So even like, you know, hey, I don't want to be remembered. I just I don't want to die. Because we have this sense that when, when that's done, What's next? How do, we, how do we deal with that tension? Guys, we've advanced so much in technology and healthcare and like life expectancy now is much higher than it's ever been probably at any point in world history. Like I praise God for, for medical science and, and doctors and, and all that stuff and, and, and healthy living and healthy eating. And, and um, I mean, for you guys, I don't do that. But like, you know, like whatever works for, for you, you know, I, I still love a good breakfast burrito and I don't care who makes it, all right? And so, but like no amount of exercise, no amount of the right supplements or the right vaccine or the right healthy eating or any of those things, like, yeah, it, it might give you a little bit more time. But the time's going to end. And, and again, we, we know this. And so we have to walk in this tension that while our life expectancies are high, our whole life is an eyelash in the scope of history. And that's challenging, right? Because all of our collective wisdom and knowledge, we've not been able to overcome death. So he's in this place of, like we said, tension. Um, theologian, commentator, professor um, Derek Kinder in his commentary on this verse says, uh, these verses says, if one fate comes to all and that fate is extinction, it robs every man of dignity and every project of his point. And so while we wrestle with like the, the shadow of death that's there, we, we hate life, uh, when it's not good, but, but man, we, we really hate life when it's toil. Because if our time's short, why work? Why, why produce? Why contribute? And then particularly when our work and what we contribute and what we invest in doesn't pan out, we get really frustrated when we get to this concept of, of toil. And that leads us to the next verse is verses 18 through 23, where, like we said, death comes for all, but, but work and toil comes for all too. It says this in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, right? Apart from God. 
seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a, hold on to this phrase, great evil. Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation or frustration or just, again, pain. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So this is the guy, Solomon here in chapter 2, who we saw last week has, has done it all, has consumed it all, has achieved it all, has had it all, and he's still not happy? You're like, man, you have all the houses you have all the women, you have all the power, you have all the wealth, you have all the wisdom. Like, you, you've never suffered want. People around the world are coming to you. You have influence. And you hate life? And you're frustrated? And, and like, you don't want to go to work? Like, man, I, how many of us are like, wow, just, just give me a purpose. Give, give me some influence. Give me an impact because, you know, I don't know if, if the little job I have right here is having an impact. I don't know if our little church here has an impact. I don't know if my little family has an impact. Solomon, you had it all. Like, I, I want to know it was worth it. And he's saying, nope, I hated it. This is awful. And his dissatisfaction, like, I, I do think it's interesting that as he talks about his dissatisfaction, he doesn't go back and talk about the parties. He's like, no, they, they were pretty great, actually. Like, Saturday night was a lot of fun, right? Good food, good drink, good times, had the best musicians, all these different things like that. That was right. No, no, the thing he says, like, man, I really get frustrated. You want to you really, like, buzzkill me, like, ruin my mood? Let's talk about work, right? How many of you, maybe even at points, like, at, at meals or with certain people, you're like, we're not going to talk about work. We can talk about anything else. You're like, cool, let's talk about the news. Okay, let's talk about work. Let's do that instead, right? Right? It's way easier. No, see, like, there, there's this frustration he has around work. There's this frustration we have around work and, and wherever you're at in, in life. Maybe it's, you're a student, right? You know, like, that's all work. You're, you're a parent at home? <laughs> that's for sure work, right? Because it's ever-present. You don't even get a Monday morning, right? It's just every, every day is Monday morning all the time, right? If you're a parent. And so work has such a huge place in our lives, and it's because many of us get our source of identity from work, right? What's the second question you ask somebody after their name? What do you do? And what we're asking, what we really should want to know is who are you? But we've replaced our identity with what we do, not who we are. Oh, I, I'm this, I do that. And, and, then, and then there's always the like, right? Any, anybody ever been unemployed or laid off? And somebody asks you, what, what do you do? And, you, and then with, with shame, right? You know, well, I'm kind of in between things right now. Or I used to be a whatever. Or well, you know, I, I freelance, you know, right? I don't know. 
And it's because we get so much of our identity from, from what we do and who we are that we struggle to have purpose in it because it consumes so much of our time. And, and what's interesting about Solomon, right, he never had that shame of like, I don't know what I do. He's like, I'm king. I build, I protect, I cultivate. In fact, we said last week that he created so much wealth uh, through his wisdom that it actually trickled down to the rest of people uh, in um, Jerusalem and in uh, Israel. It said that, that silver was as nothing in the days of Solomon. Like Solomon gets to ask, hey Solomon, what'd you do this week? Oh, I made sure that everybody in the country had gold. Worked out really well. Everybody's super happy. Like that's awesome. Like, we'd love to have that motivation, love to have that purpose. And so we all have motives for our work and our studies and what we do. And, and maybe, you know, at worst, they're very selfish motivations. Like, I just want more for me. And sometimes at our best, we're like, well, I want better for my family. I want to serve my community, right? Um, you know, millennials, uh, uh, you know, I'm not picking on you guys. I mean, I'm only like a couple years older, maybe like a lot more years older now. But right, you know, the, the, the trend a few years ago was like, millennials only want work that means something. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, it meant something for me to get that Frosty from the Wendy's. Like, I needed that, right? And so like, all of our work has meaning, but we, we, we miss that. And so we all want to have some great grand purpose, and we forget that like the way God's economy works for human flourishing is like somebody needs to till some ground. Somebody needs to plant some seeds. Somebody needs to, to walk the cows. Out, I don't know if people walk the cows. I don't know, right? Somebody for sure has to milk them. Somebody needs to put that milk into a container. Somebody needs to drive a truck that ships that milk around. Somebody needs to pump the gas to make sure that truck has gas. Somebody needs to go get the gas from the ground, right? Somebody needs to develop a brand new, you know, electric truck, right? All those things all get it. Somebody needs to work at the grocery store. Somebody needs to be in marketing so we know that milk is three seventy-five a gallon uh, at this place, but it's two seventy-five if you go to Costco, right? So we can make good choices. All of those things, you're like, those are all really, those are meaningless works. No, it gets to the place where you got milk on your Crispix so you have, like, life. Like, that, that means something. Every little thing that we do that helps produce and contribute actually produces life and flourishing for those around us. Like, this is the way God designed human flourishing to, to be through economics. Okay, I'm, I'm, I've nerded out way too much. You want to talk tax policy? Okay, let's get back to it. We all have motives for our work. And Solomon, man, he had great purpose for his work. We saw that last week that he produced all these great houses uh, and gardens and fortresses for himself. But man, he had a, a greater purpose. Solomon's life, he was commissioned by the Lord to create a temple, a place where people could encounter and meet the creator of the universe to actually have a place that people would worship their God, that they would worship, that, that God would dwell with his people. This temple had what was called the Holy of Holies, this one place where, where a priest would come in and give sacrifices and, and, and help to, to mediate between a perfect holy God and, and an imperfect people. And when you look at um, some, kind of some of the designs of the temple and the way it was supposed to be adorned, like... Uh, it's actually, again, supposed to mimic the Garden of Eden. 
right? There's, there, there's gold trees and fruit and all these different things of, a, of abundance around it. And so not only did Solomon do everything he could to build his own life, he also had this, this grand purpose of helping to establish communion between God and his people. That should get you up on a Monday morning. And yet Solomon still is like, I'm kind of frustrated. Most of us don't have big dreams like restoring communion between the creator and his creation. And some of us maybe just have simpler dreams or, or just dreams of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if I could just have that, I'll be okay. And so all of us have come to different places in our lives, and I want to ask you, where have you gotten to the place in your work where you've just kind of hit a wall? Where the, the job you had for a minute that you thought was a temporary job is now your career. The place that God has you in that you thought was like a rest stop on your way to something greater is now where he's had you put roots in. Where you finally come to the place where your childhood dreams aren't going to be realized. Like I was going to be a paleontologist who also played for the Minnesota Timberwolves because I was like, I'm going to be like the best basketball player on a terrible team. Guys, none of those things have happened. And even in my early 20s, I was going to be a professional water skier. Guys, I'm not good at water skiing. Like, I'm bad at it. And so at certain points, your, your dreams shift. And you're no longer, like you get to this place in your life where you're kind of like, I, I think I know how this is going to go the next 20, 25, 30 years. Or like, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we're going to get the house on the lake. Or I, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know that I'm ever going to achieve this. Whatever that is, then what? How are you going to find meaning and purpose then when you're no longer driven by your dreams? How do you function then? And I think that's what's important for us to, to have a rich theology of work, if you will. See, the plot of the Bible, believe it or not, actually begins before there's sin or brokenness or anything entering in the world. God actually gives work for men and women to do. So in God's perfect garden. He places a man and a woman and he says, you're going to guard and keep this garden. And you're going to cultivate and you're going to be what? Fruitful and multiply. That's a good job right there. Right? Some of you have to think about it for a second. Okay. So before there's brokenness, before there's sin, before there's anything, God made us for a purpose that includes work. And you're like, okay, yeah, I, I, I guess, but have you, have you done my job? Do you know my boss? Do you know my coworker, right? Do you know, you know who I'm having to deal with? Well, sin did enter the world. Sin impacted all of creation. If you read in Genesis chapter 3, it says that, that, that all work that's supposed to be fruitful, that's supposed to be cultivating, is also going to be met with or include toil, right? That is why like like, yep, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna make bread, right? You're going to have grain come up from the ground. There's going to be thorns and thistles too. 
and they're going to choke out that grain, and you're going to have to weed. And, and how many of us, right, have, have worked jobs or, or at different places in our careers where we're like, okay, I think I finally, we've dialed this thing in a little bit. We got the strategic vision. We've got the systems going. We got these things going. And then you're like, we, we should be like cruise control now, right? And then eh, right away, grinding gears, something happens, somebody moves away, you, you, you lose a coworker, right? There's a frustration here, there's a conflict here. And, and there's days that we go about work and we're like, I feel really good and really satisfied. When you feel that way, know that that is a gift from God because he's made you to have some joy in accomplishment, some satisfaction in work. And when you are frustrated and discouraged, and they're like, why is this so hard? The gospel, the Christian worldview, a theology of work says, well, yeah, because there's sin in the world, because there is brokenness, because we're not home yet. And maybe you're like, man, I'm, I'm glad that there's, you know, some work now, and I'm glad there's toil. Can't wait to get to heaven, because I want to play on a, on a harp, on a cloud. I don't really know where we got that imagery from. I hate to break it to you. Some of you have heard this before. There's work in heaven. You can look at Isaiah chapter 65. It has this vision of the new heavens and new earth. And it talks about building a home, cultivating a vineyard, all these things where, where toil's removed. Where your work is actually fruitful. Like imagine that you're building a house that's never going to need maintenance because of decay. How nice are you going to build that house to be? And you're going to get to enjoy it and not look around? Like, like you're going to be a perfect craftsman, so you're not going to look around. Like, ever painted a room and everybody else comes in? It's like, hey, nice paint job. And you're like, yeah, they shouldn't see that right there. They don't see, like, none of it. Like, you nailed it. And so what we live in now is a time where work has been, had toil and sin and frustration added to it. And where we are going is a place where work still exists, cultivation still exists, purpose still exists, but toil and sin have been removed. I mean, that, nobody's going to have a case of the Mondays in heaven. Because you're going to be like, it's Monday! Let's do this! Yesterday was the worship service around the land. We all sang songs. Saturday, we had the, the big feast, good food, good drink. Now it's Monday! I can't wait! TPS reports! Okay, there's no TPS reports in heaven pretty sure. Oh man, I really hope not. Some of y'all in eternity and be like, Chris, you're wrong on the TPS reports. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, some of you have never seen the movie Office Space, and that's because you live fruitful lives. Okay. The challenge that we have right now is that because there is sin in our work, even though work is part of our lives and purpose, we do one of two things. We either idolize our work which just leads to greater frustration and pain and all those things, right, when we get our identity there? Or we become idle in our work. We either idolize or become idle. We become workaholics or we become slothful, lazy. What does it all mean anyway? Why even try? So we need to be able to have some clear meaning and purpose. And that gets really frustrating for Solomon here. And guys, I promise we're going to get to some good news, but that gets really difficult for Solomon here in these verses because he says, hey, uh, I worked and I built and he accomplished and he did some amazing things. And he's like, and I'm going to have to hand it off to somebody else. And that's, 
that's even more challenging because some of us, right, you, you get to this place in your life and you, 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 you've maybe accumulated wealth or you've, you're going to start having an inheritance and you start to look at the generation behind you and you're like, they didn't earn this. Man, they're not going to take care of things the way I took care of things. And so Solomon gets so frustrated because he's like, I've done all this work to cultivate and produce and amass, and I'm going to have to hand it over. What if the person after me ruins it all? Then what? Well, we're back to Monday being like, I don't even know why I'm here. Because like this kid eats paste, and I'm supposed to have him later on like lead the free world, right? Right? Every president at one point probably ate paste. And so we get to this place generationally where we see this injustice of, of all that we accomplished um, being handed over to a generation that did nothing to earn it. And, and when I was younger, I would take some days off in the middle of the week and I would go water skiing trying to, you know, get good at it. And I'd go to Lake Taps. And, it, and Lake Taps, kind of like Lake Stevens, a little bit bigger, tons of houses all over the place. And in the middle of the week there, uh, I would have been taking the day off. Um, you know, I, I would see all these, at the time, like $100,000 ski boats, all driven by high schoolers and college students. And I was like, those turds. Like somewhere in some law firm is some dad or mom, right, working away, some, some ER somewhere, some surgery place somewhere, you know, some, some governmental office somewhere. Somebody's like slaving away and making the payments on the Mastercraft so Chaz can go out there and go skiing with his buddy on Wednesdays, right? And I was just like, that is such an injustice. And, and Solomon had that same angst. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 12, we don't have time now. When Solomon the king who united Israel brought all this prosperity, when he died and handed it off to his son Rehoboam, man, that guy destroyed the nation. All of the advisors came to him and said, hey, um, your, your dad Solomon was super wise. He wasn't too tough on people. He was firm, but, you know, and, and like he created flourishing. And, and Rehoboam's like, oh yeah? I'm going to show off my power. And he just ratcheted society down so tight that everybody was frustrated. And it led to pain and anger for everyone, so much so that their, that their united states of Israel of 12 tribes disintegrated. 11 of the tribes said, peace out. We ain't doing this. I think only Texas remained. I don't remember how it all worked out. You have to look at 2 Kings 12, right? Solomon, all of his work to create flourishing was undone a generation later. Was anything he did less important? Right? I mean, he was given a purpose by God to work, to cultivate, to do all these things, right? Um, there's a the guy about 450 or 350 years ago um, named John Harvard, and, and he came um, to, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't America at that point, but the New England area, and he started uh, a school. And he started a school, uh, he was a pastor, uh, and by all accounts, a godly gentleman and lover of learning was what he was known as. And he founded this little school in Massachusetts that was to be for devout Christians. He left all of his money, all of his property, um, all of his hope in educating, leading to a, he hoped, a society that would worship the God of the Bible, that would love Jesus, and would lead to flourishing for many. 
And, and does, does anybody know what the, um, uh, what, what like the motto of Harvard is? Well, right now it's veritas, which means truth. But for 200 years, from 1650 to 1850, you know what the motto was that John Harvard set down? For the glory of Christ. And then later for, for Christ and his church. Um, I don't know if you guys know this. Harvard's not exactly a conservative Christian seminary right now. In fact, actually, just a couple weeks ago, um, the Harvard chaplains voted on who the president of their chaplain association would be, and they legitimately voted for an atheist. That's the guy we want in charge. All of our students have existential angst, right? Like, hey, I, I just what does it all mean? And they go to the atheist chaplain, and he's like, I don't know. We're all going to die. You're just a bunch of atoms anyway. Go back to astrophysics. Okay. Man. Did John Harvard's life glorify the Lord less because of where Harvard's at now? No, because he did what God called him to do in the place and time God called him to be, regardless of what the legacy was going to be. And so all of us have some concerns of what Solomon has, of what's going to happen for the world when we're not in it. And we, we, we kind of think maybe too much of ourselves and, and maybe have too much of, a, of an idea that we're the ones that are holding us all to, together in the first place. And so we have to be able to work, to serve, to lead, to engage, knowing that when we're gone, our influence is over. Um, the building you're sitting in right now was Marysville First Baptist Church. And for generations, saints poured into this building, this place and space, right? Gave of tithes and offerings, led Bible studies, people got baptized, weddings happened, kids were dedicated, pastors came, pastors went, right? All of those things. And while their name still chills it out front, that church doesn't exist anymore. By God's grace, in, in January, it'll be five years of us being in this place and space. They voted to hand it over to us, not knowing what was going to happen. And Lord willing, whether we have another 20, 25 years together as Mercy Fellowship, whether pastors come after me or whatever, and, 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 and the legacy is longer than that, at the end of the day, there's not going to be a Mercy Fellowship. There's not going to be a Marysville First Baptist. There's not going to be, name any other church. The Bible ends with one church, all worshiping one Jesus. And so we have to be very, very okay with working and loving and serving and leading in the places uh, that God has us. Yes, thinking about the next generation. I mean, we are, we are enjoying the fruits of generations before us. We did nothing to earn this place and space. What are we going to pass on to the next generation? And while it can be intoxicating to think about legacy, the more you think about legacy, it's a kind of a funny thing, the more you focus on your legacy, the less of one you're probably going to have. We need to be more focused on our mission today than our legacy tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Focus on what and where God has you today. Because for Solomon, it just led to this place at the end of verse 23 that we've probably all been. 
where he says his days are full of sorrow, his work is a vexation. And he says, even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. See, if we let work consume us, right? Anybody had a, like sometimes you have a job where you're like, I punched out and now I'm gone, I'm good. Some of you have lifestyle jobs or you're in leadership or, or you, like I said, you're a parent and it's just always going on. And things happen and they creep in and, and you're thinking, you know what? Work is so hard right now. Monday is terrible. At least I got the weekend. Maybe the day's tough, you know, and you're like, at least I'm going to get some sleep. At least for those five, six, seven, eight, nine hours, you know, whatever, like, at least then I'm going to be disengaged from the toil of my job. And what happens? Sleepless nights. And you play that game. And this is actually a game that I was, like, I studied this during the week, and I was like, well, thankfully, I'm sleeping pretty well this week. And then last night happened. And you play that game where you're like, okay, it's 1.30 now. If I fall asleep now, I'll have four and a half hours. You're like, okay, now it's 4, 4, 1.45. If I fall asleep now, right? And you just do that. And this is where Solomon's at because, because when work consumes us, we don't get to rest. When we find our identity in our work, we will not rest. When we find our identity in Jesus, he's the one who in the midst of a storm, in, the, in a little boat out in the sea, Jesus is taking a nap. Because Jesus is like, I can rest because I know how this goes. I can rest because no matter how big the storm is, there's peace in my soul and in my person. We will not have rest in this life or the life to come if we're trying to find our meaning and worth and identity in our work. But we will have rest in this life and the life to come. And don't hear me wrong, you have a sleepless night, you didn't lose your salvation, like... There is difficulty in this world. But we will have rest in this life and the life to come when our hope and identity is not in our work, but in Jesus' work in our place. And that's where we start to get to some good news here as we close. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26, we can begin to see some glimpses of the sun. It says this. After saying that there's vexation and no rest, in verse 24 he says, there is nothing better for a person, then he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Also, I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So while there's this darkness of toil, death is coming for us all, Monday's terrible, like at a certain point you're in this dark laboratory, you're down in the library, like finally, here in these verses, little glimmers of sun start to come in. Finally, somebody's kind of come in, in in your darkness and brooding, and what does it all mean? Somebody's come in and pulled the curtains open and says, hey, there's some light. You can look at this in a new light now. And, and where God had been absent in the text for like, like a chapter and a half, God comes back. And he's like, oh, food is different when I know it's from the Lord. Good food, good drink, celebration, that's different when I remember that God made us for joy, right? Steak and a nice cab tastes different 
when you're a Christian. And that's not because there's any molecular difference at all, but it's because you know God made this cow to be delicious. As opposed to just, well, anyway, it's meat. God has given us the ability to experience joy. And so as the preacher begins to drive home his point in this sermon of Ecclesiastes, he begins to paint this picture of what our life looks like with God. Well, we've been toiling away in the dark basement, like right, the, the, the light's out, old things can be seen in a new light. Wisdom and knowledge that was like, well, that's just for your own skills and your own life. He's like, no, no. Again, wisdom, right? That's a gift from the Lord for us to navigate our lives well. And while there's great vexation and difficulty, he actually says here in verse 24 when it says, nothing better that they should eat and drink and find enjoyment. Um, That word in verse 24 doesn't just mean enjoyment. Like, hey, there's nothing better than just having a good meal. It actually is this rich, rich word that means It will make his soul to see the good. Imagine your perspective in life when because there's a God in heaven who knows you and loves you and made you, yes for work, yes for purpose, but also for joy, that when we walk with him and in him, that it makes our soul to see the good. How how much more enjoyable is life when you have vision to see the good. It has, I just feel like that is so sweet. It's such a sweet word to make his soul to see good. Paul t- um, in the New Testament tells Timothy, a younger pastor in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And so for Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he begins to see that a great life and even good work with God can give us purpose and clarity. And yet, I think there's some of us that still think that maybe we're Solomon in the story. Like, yeah, I'm going to have to give it over to, I'll work hard, but man, I'm going to have to give it over to somebody that didn't earn it. And we forget that we are the ones who did nothing to earn what we've received. And maybe some of you, I mean, you're hard workers, right? You've done these things, you've cultivated, but like, you didn't make trees, right? You're well-educated, you didn't make the school. You're great at, you know, you do stuff in tech and online, like you didn't make computers, right? All of these things are an inheritance that we've received. And when we recognize and have some humility that we are the ones where another great worker has given us an inheritance, it leads us to a place of gratitude. And that's where, like, Solomon's great, but as we said, Solomon's not the destination for us. Jesus is always the destination. Because where Solomon looks at the great work and great toil, handing it over to somebody who doesn't deserve it, Solomon, back earlier in in, um, chapter 2 here, he calls that a great evil. But Jesus... But Jesus, he came down, went to the great toil of the cross. That's what we remember each week when we take communion. His body broken, his blood shed. Like you can't, there's nothing. I know you've had a bad day at work. You you weren't put on a cross. And for Jesus, he toiled on the cross to then give an inheritance 
to those of us sinners who did nothing to deserve it. And where Solomon says that's a great evil, Jesus says this is good news. This is good news for me. This is good news for you. This is good news for us. That, that nothing we have done is going to accomplish an enduring value for ourselves, but what Jesus did for us on the cross has an eternal value. It pays for our sin and brokenness now. It purchases our future and the work that Jesus done, like when, when everything that we do never feels like it's finished, Jesus on the cross declared, it's finished. Jesus has already done all the work for you to save you. You get to just walk and receive. Where, where Jesus died in your place, we are people who are spiritually dead. Who Ephesians says, God made alive because of his great mercy. And it says, God has prepared good works for us that we should go walk in them. Like he's already done it for us. We just go and walk in them. And because of our new life, everything you do now here matters. Everything you do now matters because actually it rings into eternity. Because where it says here, the sinners, those who don't love the Lord or, or acknowledge the Lord, all that they do is going to just be given to the righteous. Let's be clear, none of us are righteous. All of us are sinners. But if our lives are in the Lord, then all of our work actually has purpose and meaning. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Whatever you do on Monday, it's not in vain. It rings into eternity. And so, where, where the sinners work and it's going to be taken from them because of the gospel, we can work knowing we've received all that we could ever have or imagine in the Lord. And that gives us meaning and purpose in all of our work now. It means that our futures are secure and so that we are now in this place. Whereas you look at Monday, because you don't want to look at death, we're at a crossroads joy, meaning, and purpose with the Lord? Meaningless toil by ourselves. That's the choice. That's where God has us. Temporary happiness or eternal joy. Meaningless toil or meaningful work. And so we stop working for ourselves. And because we're gospel people, we receive the work that God has done for us. And we rest knowing that yes, Monday is coming. And yes, death is coming. But our present and our future are secure because of the past work of Jesus in our place. So that we can live and enjoy as we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.